Hello, this is Bill Curley. And Holly Hudley. And welcome to the podcast In Between, which is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church and Ordinary Life. Good morning, how are you? Hi, I am I'm good, and as I just got through explaining to you, I'm even better now that the Astros have tied the series back up with a win. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, it's it's a totally codependent relationship, and I've really got Have you always it. been such a basket, baseball fan? <laughs> um, I have, yeah, I have. <laughs> I think that... It's funny because it has become more of a container for um, kind of momentary emotions in the last probably five or 10 years than it was when I was a child, but I played my whole life. So it's a sport that I just absolutely love the artistry of. Um, So yeah, I have always been a big fan. Okay. Yeah. I grew up listening to Milo Hamilton on the radio and so that sort of just the, the background music of my childhood is Astros radio announcers. And you knew that Milo Hamilton was a member of St. Paul's. You know what? I didn't. That's funny. I did not yeah. know that. Yes, he was. Huh. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. And they had some event here some time ago honoring him. So That's great. Yeah, he died amazing. in what was it? 10 or 12 years ago? I can't. 10, I don't think it's been that long. Okay. Everything feels like dog years lately, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you asked me before we started <laughs> recording this where I was about what I was thinking. And um, I, I've, been, I've been thinking a couple of things as we are trying to work through this first sign in the Gospel of John. And I've been particularly thinking about its relevance for us. Mm. Um, I've been thinking about the difference between belief and faith Mm. Mm -hmm. and how um, Jesus as a teacher made such a radical break with the Judaism of his time. Mm -hmm. And um, he was um, very creative. Very. in, In breaking all the rules. I, I did some work in um, another commentary in in the commentary that's written by uh, Raymond Brown on uh, John, and he says that the scholarship seems to indicate that the history behind this particular story of Jesus turning water into wine comes actually very late in the Jesus narrative, hmm. but in John it's put at the very beginning. Because for several reasons, I think, because it shows such a radical break in in a redoing of Jewish uh, tradition about about baptism. So part of what I intend to do on Sunday is talk about how um, beliefs have a tendency to cling on to things, whereas faith is about letting go. Mm -hmm. And I noticed that you held up the book of Meister Eckhart, Secrets, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Eckhart was all into a theology of descent, a theology of letting go, and that sort of thing. I, I, I've also been listening to uh, Following the Mystics Through Narrow Gates 
because I wanted to hear Finley again. I've probably listened to this series of CDs. Maybe this is my sixth time. Mm. And Finley says that one of the prayers that nobody really, really, really wants to pray is, Thy will be done. Ah. Well, it certainly does um, require a letting go, right? And and this, and then, and for me, I will say that anytime that prayer, um, I, there's two things that come up for me. Um, thy will be done. It is about that letting go, that letting go of control, that letting go of what I like to refer to in Buddhism as um, attachment versus commitment, right? Um, attachment is gripping. Attachment is it needs to be this way. Commitment is the outcome may change from what I think it needs to be, but I'm committed to the process, right? So that's that's one thing. But I also think when we say things like thy will be done, we immediately reference an outside God. And that's sort of, if that's where the language goes for me, that's sort of working magically out there. Thy will be done. So there's something also about... Um, releasing personal responsibility that that phrase has for me. Uh, I'd love to hear you talk through that because I it, it does feel like an important prayer, thy will be done. But what does that mean when we try to sort of imagine beyond a separate God? And um, when we talk about wise religion being about personal responsibility? Well, if you listen to the Hebrew prophets and mm -hmm. Jesus was in that tradition, the will of God has to do with favoring those on the bottom. And uh, so I would say that God's will for us is that we be involved in structures to um, alleviate pain and suffering and to administer justice to those who don't get it by the system. Finley has this story where he says, imagine that you're, in a, you know, you're attending a conference or something and you go to bed and the next day you get up and you go to breakfast with all these other people and somebody says, oh, did you hear about Betty Sue? What? God's will was done in her life. And the response is, oh, no, she was such a nice person. <laughs> you never know what's going to happen. You know? So yeah. God's will is, is really, it's going contrary to... Um, what, what we want, what we think, as long as we are led by the cultural system that is in dominance, and as long as we're led by our egos. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and, and there's something, I think, for me about um, being in synchrony with, um, I want to say reality, but then the obvious question is what reality? Um, but I think one of the things that I really love about cosmology is that it really helps me understand that everything that happens on the macro is also happening on the micro. Um, and, and the more that we push against that sort of the natural laws of things, um, energy follows attention, um, nothing can be created or destroyed, only transformed. You know, uh, there's some really beautiful wisdom in the sort of natural laws of the cosmos that I think do apply in our, in our very human understanding of it. And that to me is what I have to sort of retranslate thy will be done into is that I, as a human being, am trying to work in synchrony with what's around me, not against what is around me. Um, you know, they say there's like three basic stances, um, toward, away, against, 
So we move towards something, we move away from something, or we push against something. And um, when we move towards something, we're in pursuit of. When we move away from something, we're, we're kind of passive, right? When we move against something, we're in conflict. I think there might be a fourth, and that's just being with. Well, I think that is the kind of thing that the uh, the mystics, the great spiritual teachers, have to offer us, and that is that there is this way of non-duality, which is, the more I stay with this, the more convinced I am that this is just hard to do. Very. It's hard, it's hard work, and it it's hard to convince people who live in a culture that tries to seduce us into believing that everything should be easy or is easy, that you can find the easy path to whatever. And so um, I'm drawn up short when I either read Meister Eckhart or I listen to people like Jim Finley and, and they say, now remember what Jesus said was follow me. And you say, sure. Until you realize what he means. Mm-hmm. And what he means is follow me to the cross. Mm-hmm. And I think that we have always looked at the, I mean, we all, we have been trained in a culture that has led us to believe that Jesus' death on the cross was so we could go to heaven when we die. Mm-hmm. And what Jesus' was, death on the cross is really about is having the integrity to live in a way that honors what the system doesn't honor. Right which is so often truth and reconciliation to put it broadly, right? The system right. doesn't honor truth and reconciliation. The, the system right. honors itself. And, and so the system is almost like a good metaphor for the ego, right? That is only in pursuit of its well-being, its needs, its sort of um, power, right? And, and Jesus, of course, is, is a great symbol or metaphor for the true self. And I think that we also, you say this all the time, and, and I think it's just really, really, really sinking into me as I, especially as I write my dissertation work, because I'm, t- I'm trying to write through a process of community healing. And we have to take that narrative out of the, out of the personal, out of the individual, you know, that in, in this, the system, quote unquote, operates as a behemoth. It's made of many, many, many things. It's like this giant ego that sort of is just working to keep itself intact. And as long as we have a consciousness that is about individual true selves and not about collective true selves, using that in quotes, then I believe we'll still be stuck. So it's, it's absolutely true that the work we do on the inside impacts the outside. But how do we make that work that we do on the inside more of a collective community process? It can't just be in here. It has to be shared. It has to be sort of, um, that's the work of the beloved community, right? Is to share in this process of healing and becoming, to have a reception area for when the individual comes out of the dark night of the soul to, to, to return to the community. And, and I'm, really trying to find that space between our individual healing and our collective responsibility. Well, it is, you know, it's my belief, and this is the way that I have chosen to live my life, that the, we create that community from the inside by 
embodying the message that we try to communicate. And that is that the thing that matters, the only thing that matters is a love that includes everything and everybody. Mm-hmm. That's all that matters. Mm-hmm. And um, so when people start talking about they have these five or six fundamentals that you have to believe, no, I don't think so. What matters is, are we loving in a way that honors the integrity of every everything and everyone? Mm-hmm. And 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 we don't we don't we don't live in that culture. We live in a culture that's addicted to money. Yes. And as long as we are addicted to having and acquiring, we th- this message has a hard time getting through. There are places. There are these parachurch groups, as I refer to them, where this message is clearly being communicated and lives are truly being changed. I think about uh, Roar's Center for Action and Contemplation. What is hard to get across is just how difficult it is to move out of the believing system Mm -hmm. into a faith system. It's just hard work. Yeah. You know that, um, do you know the shortest poem ever written? The shortest poem, Adam Adam. No, it was a poem that was in a speech by Muhammad Ali, and it was simply me, we. Wow. Mm -hmm. So this, what you just said, that the individual work is to uphold beliefs that are good for the whole. That's me, we. I didn't know he did that. That's very good. Yeah. Yeah. In a speech he gave and, you know, and then I think about Jesus's brilliance was in introducing, maybe not introducing, he's not the first, but as who we might consider one of our ancestors, right. Our, Our kind of lineage of belief and faith was so good at the radical imagination because again here we are 2000 years later still working through this and i i'm this idea of the radical imagination is not based on dreaming better futures but it's about realizing future possibilities and drawing them back to the present moment so jesus had this way in his storytelling of, of weaving together past, present, and future. And I, I think that there's a lot of great parallels there. It's um, past, present, and future. It's um, me, you, us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's all of these threads that need to sort of come together into faith to, make, to realize, what is the title of that book? The... Um, the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible. Mm-hmm. Is that the name mm-hmm. of it? Yeah. Yeah. So a, a question that I get periodically from people after we teach on Sundays, and I've gotten it across the years is, how do you teach non-duality to children? Mm, I don't think you need to. And um, <laughs> well, you know, I think, I think the stages of faith development are really, really important. Ken Wilber says that. Mm. Uh, everybody that I've read says that that you do need mm-hmm. to start in a in a binary uh, belonging system so that you can learn the rules about how to treat people fairly and how to play and how to take care of yourself and 
don't cross the street when the light is red and all of those kind of things. Mm -hmm. But they can still sure. be taught that in that container that what matters most is love. And then when yes. they want to go and test their independence, they can still be taught that they can do that with love and in love. Mm -hmm. And I think that if we have a sufficient number of adults who are comfortable having living in perplexity and moving into harmony, mm -hmm. those are the last two right. stages, according to McLaren's model that I've been reading lately. If we have enough adults who are okay with that, the kids will pick it up and they will be okay. My wife says that kids are like vacuum cleaners. They suck up everything. Yeah. And if we're prejudiced and filled with hate and fear, so will the kids be. Mm -hmm. You know, when I say I don't think we need to teach non-duality to kids, it's that on some very resonant, um, intuitive level, they already get it. It's just... Um, it's almost like we're born knowing about non-duality, but we have to learn how to articulate our, expe our experience in the world. We have to learn how to differentiate the I from the we, you know? Um, and then we have to learn how to come back to the we and in a, in a, in a healthy informed way, you know? So um, yeah, we're born knowing oneness. Then we have to differentiate. This is universe formation also. It was born in this one thing and then it differentiated, spread out, became more complex. And then as it becomes more complex, it goes back toward unity. And that's the same thing in faith development. It's born here in this moment, simple, complexifies, unifies. Again, if we follow the way of the cosmos, of the universe, we can, that's it. Yeah, we participate in something that's already happened. Exactly. And that's where it's just like, can we just sort of be with that? But I think our sense-making minds want to make sense of it. You know, we want to understand it. We want to analyze it. We want to understand the process, the steps, the behaviors. And, and that's where, when you say, can we teach non-duality to children? That's where mindfulness practices can come in, where, you know, um, that, that's what you can teach, you know, are the processes how to be with non-duality. Because we're already in it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. How do, yeah. How do we, there, there are a couple of things here that I have been thinking about since last, um, since we talked last week. Mm -hmm. One is that spiritual work, should free us from preoccupation with the self. Mm -hmm. And yet all too often, it leads us to be preoccupied with the self. It's a trap because, you know, I've got, I want to know kind of where I am in this growth model, but that directs attention toward me and not toward harmony That's out right. there. So it's something that I think we can just be mindful of. Mm -hmm. And I think your point is really well taken. There's nothing we can do to make the way that the evolutionary process works work. There's nothing we can do about that. That's, a, that's the ego's desire to want to control things. What we can do is put ourselves in a position that offers the least resistance right. to our being able to be caught up in the way that 
the evolutionary process works. That's right. And to just kind of wonder yes. about, oh my God, this I'm part of this. Yeah. It's a pretty amazing thing. Yeah, it really is. And and then human beings at some point were endowed with tools. We like to fix things. We also like to wreck things. We like to build things. We like to find solutions. And so these tools, you know, the idea about the sort of ideal um, green city, for example, is rooted in every tool that we use, technology included, ought to mimic something about the natural world. Um, as opposed to work against it. And, and, and that's, you know, we, we're, not, we're not in that space yet because we keep trying to dominate the natural world rather than work and flow with it. We are part of the natural world, which means we're also trying to dominate each other and ourselves, you know? So it's, I, um, you know, our growth curve, our learning curve is still on a, needs to head on a sharp incline um, in terms of, how do we actually be in harmony with what is? Um, Self-conscious reflection is probably one of the most complicated things that um, quote unquote, God created. <laughs> mm-hmm. 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 And, and, and to be very clear, and I'd, I'd love to sort of set the stage um, a little bit um, for, for kind of where we're coming from. I was reading in our Meister, our favorite Meister Eckhart book. Um, <laughs> and I love this poem. So maybe this can sort of help us set a little conversation for now. It said, even in you, try to imagine this if you can. God did not create once before time, but is always creating all the time and in every place, even in you. And try to comprehend this truth that is astonishing and finally beyond belief. That God is in all things, but the more God is in things, the more God is outside them. The more in, the more out, the more out, the more in. This is how God is in you, creating even now as at the beginning and is never finished without end. Wow, I love that. Mm -hmm. And this ongoing creative process that we're in. Um, this ongoing evolutionary process that we're in. A, we're not in control of it. B, we're just part of it. C, we don't know the outcome, but we can sort of direct our part if we want to. But I'd like to maybe ask you, you know those terms, apophatic and cataphatic? Apophatic being what God is not, cataphatic being what God is. Mm -hmm. Okay, so... I think it's important for us to go, this is what we believe about Jesus or this story. This is what we don't believe. God is always creating. We are part of that creation. What do we believe about this story that is, meaning the water into wine story? And what do we believe about this story that isn't? (laughs) Well, it isn't about a literal transformation of water into wine. It's not about that. Mm -hmm. I think maybe we should teach a class sometime, Holly Call. What would Jesus be construct? Oh, that'd be great. So, um, do you, do you, what this story is about is um, I have not had a chance to do this. I intend to do this before Sunday. I want to go back and look at all the references, particularly in the Christian writings, about wine. Mm-hmm. 
because Jesus had a parable that he told. He doesn't tell it in John about you don't put new wine in old wineskins. Right. And there is something heady about and Jesus clearly saying, I got new teachings here and they are, they do what wine is supposed to do. They transform the way that you think. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's a doubt. Da- there's a downside to that, which we can go into even what some of you talked about, about alcohol and the use of alcohol. Mm-hmm. But um, th- this story was a parable created by whoever wrote the book of signs to say Jesus is taking the tradition of Judaism and he is giving it an absolutely new definition. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's what the story is about. It's not about, I mean, if you go and read the story, um, there's no mention in the story about anybody saying, holy smoke, did you see that? There's no, there's no, oh, wow. Verse 22. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. There, yeah. There's nobody who says, wow, look at the magic man. Right. It's, it's, it's a story that, that the writer of this particular part of John created to say, this is something absolutely new. So that when Jesus, in, in the parable, when Jesus invites people to drink the water, that is supposed to be used for purification on the outside. He says, take this into yourself. Mm -hmm. This is the cleanliness that you need. Mm -hmm. It's not what happens on the outside. It's what you take into yourself Mm -hmm. that transforms you. Mm -hmm. That's what I think your story is about. So we can agree that this story is about transformation, alchemy, right? We can also agree that this story, I think we can, is not about Jesus announcing himself as the divine son of God who has come to save our, save us from our sins through his blood. Right. And so many traditional interpretations, 99%, you just Google radical interpretation of water into wine. Even that specific still gives you the traditional interpretations and what they say is radical about it is the move that Jesus makes to announce himself as the Messiah. And I think what we're both saying is Mm-mm. that's not it. Am I right? Right. But it, you're right. Yeah. So I think that this is one thing that sort of, um, I said last week, like we may in this classroom be on all different levels of comfort with, um, Father God, masculine, feminine God, is God even personified? And maybe there is no God. But even if there is no God, how can we reimagine the God that we say we don't believe in? You, you know, I mean, and this is where it's like, this just gets us kind of, wah, because we don't have an answer for that. But I think that what we can both be pretty sure of, and I'm wondering if you agree, is that the commitment to constant transformation and evolution is the point. That is the point. So, (laughs) you know, I, I what you say sparks me to say something else. When I started this journey after being fired from teaching in the seminary and I was, you know, kind of thrown back on my, 
career in trying to think, okay, I, I accepted this invitation to kind of be a resident theologian for this church in Houston. And I was thinking, okay, what is the message that I want to craft? And and what I wanted it to be was to be radical. I didn't, I even used the word radical in, at, at the time. This is back in the mid 60s. What I wanted to, it to be was a message that excluded no one. It, it used no religious language that would cause anybody to go, oh, I can't do that. So what I said is that the, the, what I want the teaching and the journey to be about is to involve all of us in a process, an ongoing becoming, um, people who are integrated around the issues of freedom and love. Mm-hmm. that's it mm-hmm. and then when I started because I've been interested in putting psychology and and spirituality together talking to people in intimate ways about their religious teachings what I encountered was person after person after person who had been deeply wounded by religious teachings they have been taught guilt shame and judgment guilt shame and judgment guilt shame and judgment so a lot of my teaching has gone to saying to people, you're not what's wrong with you. Right. What you think is wrong with you. Is it a key to understanding the, the miracles of Jesus, by the way, the healing miracles of Jesus? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I now live in a culture where I want to keep that message going, but I also want to say to those people who are out there with the biggest megaphones blaring that they have the truth, no, mm-hmm. you're not what you think is right with you either. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, because we have created a culture of narcissists who are so self-centered and they have the truth that it's hard to get a message across that the, your truth is being divisive and therefore it is just the truth that sets people right. free. Right. Well, I remember you saying once, um, I don't remember when, some years ago, um, that if we could imagine the most loving person we know doing the most loving thing they could, that even that is not as loving as God, right? Right. That it, and, and so I, I think that it, it really, it's, it is that simple and it is also that difficult. What prohibits us from being that loving, you know, it's so, and I think that's the ego, right? It's our ego staying stuck in that ego place of, um, driven by fear and righteousness and, and, and the me part of Muhammad Ali's poem. Well, I think what I I, I know that my answer is going to sound simplistic, but I think that Mm -hmm. what prohibits us from moving in that direction are are, what prohibits many people from moving in that direction is that they are at stage one spiritual development and they are embracing a tribal mentality where I'm right and you're wrong. I'm good and you're bad. Therefore, I need to destroy you. And the God that I have created in my image will do that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if I'm being truthful, um, 
being such a huge baseball fan probably gives me some permission to stay in my tribal mentality, right? <laughs> but in a way, it's like I, I can kind of contain it there, right? Like for those nine innings, I'm rooting for the good guys who are, of course, always going to be my team. <laughs> and but I think that that the and in some ways we do need those outlets, right? These kind of that's why I think sports exist. That's why I think um, healthy competition exists. And I do believe competition can be healthy. I, can, I believe it can be fun. I believe it can teach us about disappointment. I believe it can teach us about how to win well. Um, the, the the difficulty is when competition becomes unhealthy. When it becomes when it's embedded in the shadow, you know. And, and I, I think that that's the thing that we're not quite developed enough as a species to move on from containing it here, leave it on the baseball pitch and, and, and then walk off and, 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 and think about how do we create this more unified world? Um, we bring the game with us wherever we go, right. I guess, is kind of what I'm saying. So <clears throat> last Sunday, I said that I, I, I've been given or I've taken the title of being the title maker for our talks. And last Sunday, I said it was going to be a taste of new wine because uh, that was a book that was popular back in the late 60s in what was called the church renewal movement. I forget now who wrote that book. But that the story, this uh, water and the wine, is about um, something heady, transformative. Um, and then I think, you know, the spiritual teachings and the spiritual teachers that have meant the most to me have left me feeling two things, um, unsettled and excited. Mm. I love it. Yeah. And so yeah. that's why I wanted to give the title for this coming Sunday's talk, Creative Maladjustment. We don't need to be mm -hmm. adjusted to American society as it currently is. And what you have in this parable that the writer of John created is Jesus being creatively maladjusted to his religion and social structure. And yeah. the writer of John is saying, I'm going to frame the story you are about to hear with this mm -hmm. heady, transformative, mind-boggling shift of consciousness. And uh, mm -hmm. so get ready. It, the rest of it's going to be like this. So, yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> the Astros have done that for me over the last four games, made me feel unsettled and excited. So that's they, that means it's, they're really good spiritual teachers. <laughs> so uh, let me get this straight before we go. They have to win yeah. five games. Uh, they have to three win out of uh, five. four. No, four out of seven. Oh, so they've they've got to win two more in this series and then move on to the World Series, which the world really just means North America. So, <laughs> so it's possible but, that they play a total of seven games. It's possible they could play a total of seven games. Yeah. And when is the yeah. next one? And today at four o'clock. Today at four o'clock. I'll be watching. Should I yes. have should I have nine one one standing by? You should probably just check on me every little bit, every now and then ask me if I'm remembering to breathe. That's what Richard and I did for each other last night. Are you breathing? <laughs> <laughs> so it's at four o'clock today. All right. I'll, it's at four I'll check on you. Well, it's four o'clock on the so day the last, that we record it. So 
I know, right? All right. Yeah. So the the last thing I'll say about what you just said is also um, this represents an arc of development. I was doing some thinking about water imagery, right? In in this arc of biblical text, which um, there's the 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 line in Exodus about water coming from stone, mm -hmm. and now we're in wine coming from water, and water coming from stone. God is masculine and um, patriarchal. That's you know that's the Old Testament God. In this story, wine coming from water. The divine feminine, the divine feminine plays an integral role in commanding the transformation of water into wine. Cool. And I think that arc is really important to acknowledge in our transformation of yeah. consciousness. Well, I'm going to look forward to what we have to say about it. <laughs> Here we go. I haven't, I haven't <laughs> finished writing and um, intend to do some of that today. I gotta go. Well, have a good rest of the day. Okay. Bye.